0: Listen, and hearken, gentlemen, that be of free-born blood. I shall tell you of a good yeoman. His name was Robin Hood. Good evening, I'm Pierce Brosman. He is a legend that goes by many names. The Earl of Huntington, Robin of Loxley, Robert Fitzsooth, and Robert Hood. But to centuries of storytellers, he is simply Robin Hood.
1: Thanks, Pierce, and welcome to the Rewind Movie Podcast. The following review will contain spoilers and may contain strong language. Today, we're going to be discussing Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves, starring Kevin Costner, Morgan Freeman, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, and Alan Rickman, directed by Kevin Reynolds. and welcome to the rewire movie podcast in fact hello me lovers it's <coughs> Gary in glasgow
2: <laughs> and i'm just full of piss and wind it's devlin in london
3: hello it's patrick calling from london this week as well cancel kitchen scraps and lepers and orphans no more messful beheadings and
4: call off christmas who told you to cover up this is matt in south korea
1: Hello and welcome back then. So today we have all the Merry Men together. Bit of a consensus pick and also a a rounding off of the unofficial trilogy of Costner. We're going to be discussing the myth, the legend, the hood. (laughs) We're going to be discussing Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which I'm pretty sure all of us have got strong, vivid memories of watching, right?
2: Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very
1: much so. So maybe we'll do this as a bit of a roundtable, but Matt, seeing as you're the furthest away, memories of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves?
4: Well, uh, I was aware of the character through um, probably my favourite Disney film, the Robin Hood uh, Disney movie, and through the TV show Made Marion and Merry Men. I don't know if you watched that. That ran between 89 and 94, and it had Tony Robinson uh, from Blackadder in it. And that kind of got me into the character. But I inexplicably missed the uh robin hood prince of thieves movie in cinemas and i first saw it around uh january 92 and i was aged about nine i think when the warner home video came out and i can't remember my first viewing because i, I re-watched it so many times that i can't even remember the first time but it was a weird thing like around that time everyone had the video it was like uh, the Mamma Mia of 1992, like every other household had that video. And it was one of the first movies to have a sell-through home video release. So you could buy or rent it immediately instead of waiting what felt like ages to, to actually own the film. Um, so I didn't actually see it in cinemas, but my, my childhood friend Dave Smith uh, would act it out because his brother saw it that summer. And uh, this family was kind of famous for acting out the scenes from the movie. And wow. uh, they did Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and they did uh, Blaze of... Uh, Young Guns 2 colon Blaze of Glory. And they did, uh, Action Force the Movie or G.I. Joe for Our American Friends. That was another one. And even Schindler's List, they acted out. So that, that's how <laughs> wow. I kind of, uh, was introduced what? to this one. Someone, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of, uh, a bit mis, misjudged, the Schindler's List one. They were better at, uh, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but they, they acted, someone acted out the, the scimitar throw from, uh, and talked about the witch. And I was really kind of intrigued about uh about the film, and I can't believe I didn't see it because i would have I would have really enjoyed it in cinemas I think at age
2: nine <laughs> yeah I remember i mean this was like a fucking phenomenon wasn't it even before it came out it was uh it was advertised to to the hilt, as far as I remember I definitely went to the cinema to see it and what would that be ninety one so I would have been six seven i think um, I would have been seven, I think, because I remember it pretty vividly. I also remember immediately going to uh, Woolworths. I was visiting my family down in Surrey at the time, so I went to Woolworths, and we all bought the action figures. Um, I, I didn't know that about the uh, the, the home video release, and I think maybe that explains why it was such a kind of ubiquitous VHS tape in everyone's house. You're right, everyone owned this tape. I'm sure of it. Um So yeah, I remember it very well. I really, I, I think, well, it was, it was inescapable because of the Brian Adams song. Um, I didn't realise Maid Marion and Her Merry Men preceded this. I always assumed that was a spoof. No,
3: Men in Tights was a spoof.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I, I just, I, I don't know, for, for whatever reason, I assumed that this kicked off Robin Hood fever. So that's kind of cool that Maid Marion came first.
3: Well, I have very fond memories growing up with it because th- this is genuinely one of the films that uh, inspired me to work and to try and work in the industry. At the time, this was uh, a big one for me. I remember queuing up for... Couple of hours with my mum and dad at the Belgrove Gate um, Odeon in Leicester to to see this, because this is the, back then. I remember there was several films back then that I remember queuing outside and round the block for, for fucking hours. Uh, this being one of Jurassic Park, being another one. And, cause I was desperate to see it. It just looked amazing. And I loved Robin Hood. Robin Hood was one of my heroes. Again, like Matt, uh, the Disney film, I was a huge fan of at the time. Maybe Aaron in this moment, not, not so much. Actually, I, I didn't, I don't remember being that familiar with that program, but just the folklore of it. And I, I, as a child wanted to go to Sherwood Forest and have a bow and all of that stuff. Um, but I remember having a poster, uh, it's, this is, it's been a really weird, like, research for this because I'm trying to find a poster that I had and it was of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. It was the, the iconic image of him stood with the flames behind him and with the right. the flaming arrow um ready to to um to loose. And but it had <laughs> it had this writing at the bottom of the poster. And I remember having it in my bedroom it was huge. But it had this writing at the bottom that was like and I don't remember if it's Brian Adam lyrics or if it was quotes from the film, or what, but it had right at the the bottom like eighth the post or whatever had these written words of uh, Robin Hood wisdom, uh, so to speak. And I remember like writing them down as inspirational quotes for my friends at school and giving it to <laughs> them. And yeah, man, I was I was well into this, and I used to act out, uh, not quite to Matt's family. Friends, friends um, yeah. But I used to do it with Playmobil and Lego, so I had all the Robin Hood Lego, and I used to act out all the scenes with the Lego, and um, didn't have cameras back then, so I didn't film any. Which I would love to have seen me film it, but this this was my thing at the time. That I was hugely obsessed with. It. So I went to the cinema three times, and Brian Adams, everything I do was the first single I ever bought.
1: So this is like not to get all mawkish and sentimental, but uh, this is probably the first film that I I had a shared experience with my mum. Like she loved this film, and I remember she took me to the cinema to see it. Which we will will ask questions about whether or not that was actually quite responsible of her to do. But again, <laughs> the VHS tape, yep, ubiquitous. We owned it too. Um, watched that endlessly. It fe- it felt like a weekend film that we would watch pretty much every other Saturday. Like I'll oh, we'll just put Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, on Saturday afternoon, and yep, the Brian Adams song. Uh, the Disney film I wasn't, like, totally in love with, but my um, – my, I've got a bit of a fascination with history, and even though uh, the history of this one is a little bit on shaky grounds, the folklore of Robin Hood and the mythology that surrounds the story um, I've always been fascinated with, and it's very archetypal. So, um, yeah, and I, what I will say about this film, re-watching it this week, is this is undoubtedly – the most Hollywood blockbuster film that we've done to date on the show, I think. Um, You know, the broadness of the characters, the themes, the story.
3: Uh, And Gally, I I wonder if, because of where you and I grew up, you know, Stoke and Leicester, I wonder if we were a bit more uh, attuned to the history of robin hood being in the midlands
1: uh, possibly i've i used to go to warwick castle all the time for for their version of
0: medieval times and
1: uh, <laughs> and so that was my sort of gateway into um, you know this this english medieval 12th century stuff but um but no i i'd never actually been to nottingham and experienced the the full you know, madness of people going. Oh, yeah, I knew Robin Hood back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> so, um,
2: have, you,
1: have you been on the tour?
2: I assume there's a tour.
3: I have, yes, yeah. I've been to the, the you know, the um, the big old oak tree in the Pierce Brosnan documentary. Uh, I've been to that and the tour and the tour around that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: because um, because me and um was me and Matt probably have like a slightly different, but uh, but also a little bit of a connection to it because of course. Uh, all of the waterfall shit was filmed uh near where we're from
4: north yorkshire yeah, yeah my friend rob langridge uh, his father moved to aesgarth falls that's where it was shot so uh and also shout out to my dad's folk band the dales folk uh i shot a music video for them very cheaply uh, at aesgarth falls once uh, nice. so yeah it has a it has a close tie to uh to us it's very very near the I, I think that tree is actually uh part of hadrian's wall which is yes. part of school trips at the time so uh i think a lot of us have actually seen that in person too
1: mm. yeah 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 i've been to hadrian's wall as is uh as is robin as well it's it's that's the the uh the quickest way to <laughs> Nottingham. Uh, yeah. so yeah <laughs> yes. very very good
3: I'm not, I'm not <laughs> <doing>. <laughs> even um even the airport in Nottingham is called the robin hood airport mm.
1: they like, yeah just to yeah. give a and scope of no the no legends. no they, they and yeah for the, the man content. The, legend. the legend yeah <laughs> so so let's let's hear the legend as told by our american cousins matt you got a plot summary for robin hood prince of thieves
4: <laughs> i do here we go jerusalem 1194 ad christian crusaders robin of luxley played by Kevin Costner, and King Richard's cousin Peter Dubois flee a torturous Holy Land prison, saving doomed Moor, Azim Adin Bashir al-Bakir, you may call him Azim, who becomes Loxley's sworn bodyguard. Peter, water- mortally wounded during the escape, pleads with Robin to protect his sister Lady Marion. Back in the strange place of... England, under an evil moon at Loxley Castle, a gang of shrouded men on horseback, in masks, led by the tyrannical Sheriff of Nottingham, lure out Robin's father, Lord Loxley, and kill him. Four months later, the strange Christian, Robin, returns home with Azim, only to discover the skeletal remains of his father and their once loyal servant, Duncan, relieved of both eyes, cut out by the Sheriff's horrible cousin, Guy of Gisborne, Turns out the sheriff has plundered the Shire in their absence and declared Loxley's land's forfeit on account of his alleged devil-loving. Robin refuses to believe the rumours and swears by his own blood to avenge his murder. With the blinded Duncan in tow, Robin and Azim enter the supposedly haunted Sherwood Forest to evade Nottingham's men. Following a wooden staff-toting, river-cross-taxing waterfall tussle with best man of the woods, John Little, or should we call him Little John, leader of a rabble of simple woodsmen, Loxley finds solace amid the Merry Men, and declares himself no longer a nobleman, but an outlaw like them. Robin, with his balls of solid rock, stirs up a bloody hornet's nest by stealing the sheriff's horse and uncovers he is building an army with intent to overthrow the king. The iron-fisted Nottingham reckoning Hood's nicked three to four million in the last five months raises the bounty to 500 gold pieces and strives to turn the populace against the brigand, hoping to hang Loxley from the walls by his own entrails. But rather than dividing the rebels, he unites them, cue a bit of robbing the rich to feed the poor. After one failure too many, the sheriff kills Gisborne, but at least he doesn't use a spoon. We meet the intolerant racist and reactionary alcoholic Friar Tuck, and Azeem proves himself to truly be a great one, playing midwife and horse-birthing Fanny's lovely little babby. Nottingham no longer has the coin to pay the barons for their allegiance, so he hires big burly Celts, forges plans to ally with royal kin, conceive a child with Marion's blood, and make a legit claim to the throne. Marion is kidnapped after her distress letter meant for the king is intercepted by Nottingham, who wickedly threatens to murder several innocent children if she refuses to wed. Duncan travels to Robin on horseback to warn him, but dies after inadvertently leading the baddies to their secret hideout, triggering a fire-arrow-laden to-the-trees attack. Robin appears to cop it in the tribal charge, but lives to tell the tale. Several of the woodsmen are taken prisoner, including Wolf and Will Scarlet. Jealousy and a mysterious, intolerable hatred of Robin drive Will to betrayal, as the traitorous turncoat agrees to get close to Robin and kill him. It is revealed Scarlet is the son of Lord Loxley and his commoner mistress. Will agrees to fight with his brother Robin till the bloody end. Meanwhile, the sheriff's wicked witch Mortiana declares she is Nottingham's true birth mother and once upon a time switched castle babes so he may rise in place of the slain royal newborn. Robin and the woodsman raid Nottingham's castle to halt the hanging of the captives. The sheriff attempts to rape and impregnate Marion at his satanic altar before a swashbuckling Luxley swings in to save the day. Azim fulfills his oath by lobbing a scimitar sword and impaling Mortiana to save Robin's skin. Robin Hood and the Maid Marian tie the knot with the blessing of Richard the Lionheart, who heroically returns to give the bride away and reclaim his rightful throne.
3: When, when does the audiobook
2: come out,
4: Matt? <laughs> <laughs> I was trying, it was too it's too long, but the, you know, there you go.
2: No, no, that well, I was I was gonna say like that is a, as good a summation as you could ask for, and my first A observation lot happens, you know, it's too yeah, much happens. Of my first observation of the film is like fucking loads happens. Like yeah. it's long, but geez, if they stuff it full of just things. Oh, that... Well, did you watch the extended version or the the theatrical release? So I watched the theatrical release. Apparently, I was just discussing this with Galley, so I did not get yeah. the sequence where uh, Anna, uh confesses that you know that that she was the mother of uh, yeah of, of Nottingham. Although I kind of, of I George, guess, I guess I was just assumed that.
1: I think what we'll do, Dablin, is what we kind of did with Waterworld and the ulysses cut is we'll just maybe highlight if we get upon those scenes or we'll just sort of make note of right here's a a little bit of an extension but in in summary the extended version is basically just a load of nottingham scenes and a little bit of backstory regarding mortiana and the the and the barons barons. Uh, with
4: that with the barons yeah
2: yeah um so that's that's just the uh, lads who are lined up behind them at the wedding right
1: yeah, that's correct. Yeah. You see a bit more of them. You see a little bit more of them because what you when you see Nottingham initially in the in the, the robes and the almost Ku Klux Klan mm. kind of look that they have, they, that never really returns in the theatrical version, whereas in the extended version, there's, there's a scene where uh, Nottingham enters and they're all sort of praying and there's a little bit more occultism, but it's not, it's not mm. terribly fleshed out. That's about as far as the extended version goes. Okay. I want to talk about something that um that we don't see very often anymore in uh, in sort of modern hollywood blockbuster fare the opening and michael Kamen's overture is probably the first time i had ever really recognized a, a piece of music and attached it to a film so when the music kicks in and the title credits come up i just this is so vivid in my in my mind because the tune is like Da, da, da. And it's just it's in, it's ingrained, yeah. absolutely ingrained. And I I really do miss these kind of bombastic scores that are, are melodic and and you can really um they they pull through the entire film. Well, it's like he, um in the, the in the infamous making of documentary that
2: we've all fallen very madly in love with, uh, Michael Caine refers to it as a fanfare, and he's right. It's like uh it's it's not dissimilar to the opening of the. John Williams' score to the Star Wars films—it's like, it's, it's putting out that something epic and grand is about to happen.
3: It's signature music, isn't it? That this is Robin Hood. Whenever you hear this, I think you've heard it on certain adverts. um there's, there is an advert out now. I think it's, I can't remember uh, what the it was. The, the, the woman, a helicopter house <laughs> yeah. thing, and you're like, that's Robin Hood. Yeah. Because I remember not even seeing the advert on TV. And I'm like, why is the Robin Hood music on?
1: And they get pissed off it's been used for anything other than the fucking film. But yeah. there you go. It's such a strong piece of music that Morgan Creek decided to license it fully. And, and they use it now for their item, don't they? Every time you see a Morgan Creek film, you hear the, the those opening bars and the sting. Yeah. And you're right, Patrick. It is the It is the iconic Robin Hood music. And I think... There were many, many problems with the uh, Russell Crowe incarnation in 2010. Um, Some similar issues with accents, but one of the main things that that makes this film so memorable, I think, is Michael Kamen's music. I think you really do have an attachment to it, and and it just draws you back into this version of Robin Hood. We were
2: talking about score music, um, me and Gally, recently. Um, There was actually a fortuitously documentary on BBC the other day, uh, which is called Score, Cinema's Greatest Soundtracks. And um, having watched that and this making of documentary, it was really fascinating to see the way uh, Caiman spoke about the score. Like he seemed like legitimately enthusiastic in a, in a way, and the way he would describe the, the the way he put the music together. The you know the love theme, he said that it was extremely simple, like a very 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 simple little melody, which means that it's going to immediately drill into your head. Um, yeah. And then other parts, he was talking about how. Um, uh, he loves his orchestras to play uh, uh, full pace, like on like as if they're they're on a runaway horse. He says they love to just gallop away.
3: I, I liked how he said he likes when the pages turn all black, and the the orchestra loved that part because they're all they're all get involved, and
5: yeah.
3: it all sounds amazing. I liked how he said that he. He was like almost in love with Maid Marion as well. That's the closest he'll get to kissing her, which was a really romantic idea behind how he conducts himself in the music, yeah. You getting involved in the characters.
2: It was, it was really interesting to see that level of, um, like physicality and somebody like throwing themselves into it versus, uh, so watching this documentary about how scores are put together, it, it, it went through into kind of the modern era and the very kind of Hans Zimmer influenced, uh, stuff that's coming out now, like the, yeah in the way his kind of his fingerprints have now changed the way score music is made and uh it's it's largely now based around uh, uh pro tools and being very very precise and being able to pull individual notes out and being able to push certain elements here and there and um it used to be that there was a a, a guy i can't remember which which composer it was who was saying that even in the 90s he would be at um abbey road studios and they would say how long did you get an orchestra to to rehearse to come up with the score? And he said, "You don't get really rehearsal. You, you get <laughs> uh, you get a day, you get one day to record the score for an entire feature film. Gosh, you literally have the orchestra, and and they don't rehearse it. They're they're sight reading. They literally have the score and they can just play it because that's their job. And uh, I just thought,
3: it's their job, but they're also just, it's it's really impressive, isn't yeah. it? I know you like music a lot, but." An orchestra is a wonderful thing. Oh, totally. And it
2: was, it was quite interesting to see that. Just it, it was a weird kind of uh, fortuitous timing to watch that documentary and then see Michael came and talk about the score and then go and watch this film, which is, you know, just like, like you say, gals, it's, it's the thing that infuses the whole film with such energy.
3: One comparison I make, you know, I said Hans Zimmer, and, and he's kind of almost changed the landscape of scores, for, especially with the Dark Knight trilogy. And I like the Dark Knight trilogy score a lot. But the Batman score, what's the Batman score to you? It, it's Danny Elton's, yeah, no, right? No. From Batman, because well, yeah. that it's has more Batman of a signature animated. and it's, it's more melodical and it's it, it's more recognisable. And I don't remember the Robin Hood score from Ridley Scott's film.
1: No, no, you won't. It's it's uh, It's more of a generic action score. That term gets thrown around for sort of the Marvel films as well, when they just talk about generic action scores. They're still fantastic. They're still produced. And there's incredible talent behind them. But it's the use of melody and simple hooks. And I think this film kind of kicked off another thing that happened in the 90s. And Michael Kamen, not to say that he was solely responsible for it, but this film, you know, if you think about the synergy between pop music and a film score, well, you have this, you have another Kevin Costner film, Bodyguard. And then later on in the 90s, James Cameron and uh, James Horner do it with Titanic, to huge success. And, Pete, and it's like it's like another it's another area that the film can tap into to basically advertise the film. And and you really do get sold on the on the, the love story. And it's it, I'll tell you now that it, I am unabashedly manipulated by the music in this film and the music in those films that I've just mentioned.
4: Yeah, big time. There's a
1: um, I, I love the Cayman score. I think it's one of my top.
4: Five ever I kind of worked out. I think Superman's up there and Jurassic Park and Indy are are all kind of on a similar level as far as the the quality of it. It just lifts the entire piece. Uh, uh, There's a great part in one of the documentaries where he talks about the job of the composer to underscore and underline the emotions and uh, the intentions of the scenes. And he does that perfectly with that piece of music. It lifts the entire film. And the opening tapestry... Uh, the opening titles with, with that music is just, uh, gold every time I'm like immediate, immediately, in as soon as I see that. And, uh, the, the theatrical trailer for the movie used, uh, the Willow music, but I'm not sure who composed the, uh, the music to Willow, but it, it's, uh, they used that for the theatrical trailer. Huh.
3: I have a question though, Matt. I wonder if you know, um, cause obviously in the documentary, you see Michael Cayman writing the, uh, the, the most recognizable. Yeah. Uh, uh beats from from the music for for everything I do I do for you. Did did he write that and then Brian Adams put it was, the lyrics on it. Or? was written how did that do you know Yeah it know was written was... in
4: one hour uh by Cayman Brian Adams and Mutt Lang. Um and I don't know who came up with the with the melody itself, but it could be Cayman. Uh, there's a weird thing where it's all inter- intertwined because the, the the lyrics to the Brian Adams song Actually, take lines from the film. Search your heart, search your soul. I yeah, do it that's for right. you. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those things were, I think, pulled from the screenplay and put into the to the writing. But it was written in in just one hour, and it was fourteen weeks at, at number one in the US, and it was sixteen weeks in the UK. So we're sick to death of it. But you know,
1: yeah, and it, it you know what? It's just reminded me of another couple of again another couple of hits. Uh, four weddings and a funeral with Wet Wet Wet, and even uh, the legend yeah. that is the boss mm. Bruce Bruce Springsteen with Philadelphia. It was just a thing in the nineties where you just had these pop songs that 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 told you a story of the film. But
3: even things like Wild Wild West that was better than the film, and you know, like well, right, that is is a
4: wild time for. Well, I was so <laughs> into it that that uh, my friend Dave that I've mentioned already, his, his brother, acted out Schindler's List. He. Uh, <laughs> he <laughs> he he got me into Brian Adams yeah. <laughs> and uh, and Bon Jovi around the same time because of uh, Young Guns Two: Blaze of Glory and it had the uh, I'm a Cowboy on a Steel Horse I Ride Wanted oh, yeah. Dead or Alive and oh, yeah. uh, so I was into that and I got into uh Brian Adams' album Waking Up the Neighbors which which had this song on and it it influenced me so much that my first guitar when I was twelve we went and picked I think it was for my birthday or Christmas and I picked the exact Fender, Stratocaster, uh, it was a Squire, so it was cheaper. But it was uh, the black and white one from the album cover. So it, it must have had a huge influence on me. And Wayne's too. I mean, he had a white on, on white strap, but it was mostly this one for the black and white. And yeah, I, Well, because they, they,
2: um, they, they tried it again, didn't they? Well, I know we're probably going to talk about this later and I'm maybe stepping mm-hmm. on uh, future discussion points, but uh, in terms of the films that this influenced, certainly... Um, uh the three musketeers that they made was pretty pretty egregious in terms of just trying to ape the formula, but they ate the formula right down to the um the saccharin <laughs> middle aged man ballad at the end with uh, and this time they they trebled down and they they drafted in Sting <laughs>
4: and Ron Stewart. <laughs> they go. did. Yeah, I I wanted um, to I I'm I'm into all that stuff, you know. But I I think um, Everything I Do has aged a bit better. The other one plays a bit strange, you know. Rod Stewart, you're an odd chap.
1: This is the one film where I really felt this week that we kind of got the cultural appropriation stick thrown at us because, yeah, the tapestry makes it think like this could actually be based in some form of reality. But it kind of worked, I guess, because everyone lapped it up. (laughs) Um, and, And we're then introduced to a title card where we just talked about the Turks in the Baron of Munchausen, or the Adventures of, I uh, got that. And, and here yeah. they are again,
2: with, a, with another with another Michael Caine yeah. score. It, oh, God, isn't
3: that's it amazing, amazing that we kick off Robin Hood in this film, and his second line is, "This is English courage," said in thick
1: <laughs> American accent. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, and let's not forget
1: about the the fright wig and beard from jumanji that costner is, is, out, is outrageous
4: apparently he wore that beard out he used to go out with that beard on and no one recognized him and he loved it he had a great time
1: <laughs> I, I i've talked about it many many times on the show about helming tone and this film's tone is all over the place and this opening we've all watched it when we were kids and I know that there was um there's a bit of a uh history from the uh the head of the BBFC who regrets uh certifying it yeah. as a PG. Uh because this opening we still regret says it's his, his biggest regret. His biggest, biggest regret, yeah. There's hands being chopped said, off, yeah. there's people being being killed, and the, you, we've mentioned it before in the plot summary, there's an attempted rape, there's some occultism. Well, there, there's, if there's you watch two the attempted kind of examples of rape, isn't there? Because when Maid Marian's taken away,
3: there's a soldier that says, I've never seen noble breasts before, and he, he goes to rip a shirt off. And that's before yeah. the wedding where um, Nottingham wants to consummate as well,
2: so they're quite a shocking acts. And also Nottingham's introduction is of him mm, with a very yeah, scary cover up. Then he but says to two know, girls linky. in the
3: corridor, yeah. like, you, my place, was it, 10.30, you, 10.45, bring a friend. It's all
1: very... Some of the darker elements in the film, Um, yeah, probably not for kids. And I do believe there was a bit of, um there was a little bit of a, a backlash uh, from families that, like you said, would have grown up watching the Disney animated version of Robin Hood or saw Sean Connery. Hmm. In the same, well, even the Errol Flynn versions
3: it. were more family-friendly as well, the, the oh, famous course. versions yeah. uh well, way back when. But in this one, I think the weird thing was, like in America, they included the ad-libbed line from Christine Slater, which was, fuck me, he cleared it, when they catapulted him over the castle. And in England, they wanted to get rid of that to keep it to a lower... Because um, they wanted a... A, P- a PG 13 rating or something in, in America, but in England, they that's one of the parts that they they cut or changed the lines. Well, slightly they, they went too. with
4: blimey, he cleared it,
3: which you know, fine.
2: Weirdly, that's um, even though I did watch the theatrical version, the fuck me, he's cleared it has been restored. Oh, yeah, that's a
4: 12 much- rated uh, release, I think. Is that right, <laughs> yeah, Chris? Yeah, Is it 12? Uh, yeah, they, they've redone hard it. Harder, not everything that was in the theatrical uh, ended up on home video until the 12 was released. So if you had the original PG VHS, it didn't have everything in. But if you've got the 12 on DVD or the subsequent extended edition, uh, which is a 12 as well, I think, uh, it's got everything back in there.
1: But what we do see in this opening this opening scene is an updating of Robin Hood, right? So Gone Are The Tights... Gone as the you know the the guy just wandering around it um, with his little merry man. We're starting in Jerusalem in this torture scene, and we're introduced to Morgan Freeman. It's the first time I'd ever seen him on screen, and I've, I I love him in this film because I think he really does bring a, a kind of a regal stature, and uh, and I think he's he's also quite buff. I, I didn't realise how in shape he was in this opening scene.
4: Well, I, I saw Shawshank again the other day and it was really notable how different he is. Um, the the British TV series Robin of Sherwood was actually the first show to introduce the Saracen member to the the Band of Merry Men. It wasn't in the legend itself, but they adopted it uh, when they made this film. And they, they changed the name from Nazir to uh, Aslan originally, who's the, the lion from Narnia. And then Uh, presumably because of Mm. it being identical they just changed it to azim which means the great one
1: a a lot of this must have been influenced by batman right you know you've taken an an iconic character that everyone knows is a bit goofy and fun and and kind of more family friendly and you update it by going dark going grimy or version of dark i mean now it looks pitiful people laugh at this as 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 utter folly but back then this is a real updating of Robin Hood, right? But also,
3: at the time, yeah. you've got to think there's there's Gulf War at, at the time. And to add a positive Muslim character into an American audience, I think it's a really,
2: really good decision at the time for the film as well. I was really surprised when, when he pulls out the the prayer mat and he's, and he's looking for I guess it's just, it, it's a weird charged, like, you know,
1: post whatever happened
2: that um that you, you you don't see that now without it being like some charged political act
1: it is a real positive representation of a of a muslim character it, it's also an opportunity the writers to kind of diversify the cast because i think it would have all yeah. it would have just all been white people so it's quite good to introduce uh, a a little bit more diversity and and the thing i like the most about azim is he's genuinely a character he's not just a stereotype i mean they do they obviously, it's a broad character, but we, we learn about his backstory, his love for his wife. We get a little bit about his religion. And we also, um, we see him being challenged by racism and converting characters within the film, like the Friar, yeah. which then in turn, as an audience member, you kind of go, oh yeah, there are other versions of, of Muslims. It isn't just, the, like you say, the Gulf War version of they're all the enemy. And, and it seems quite prescient in 91 as, and as it is now in 2020. Well, we
4: cringed a little bit, didn't we, about the, the term the painted man. We we were kind of cringing a bit, but that there's I don't think there's any malice intended. It feels
3: contextual, I, doesn't it? it? It does feel it does. like that's okay.
4: Yeah, he's he's kind of a he's worldly and wise and he's got that cool bucket of water system and his his gunpowder concoctions. He's actually the smartest one there, you know, in in the in Sherwood Forest. He's teaching them everything. Yeah.
3: And his relationship with, uh, like their on-screen chemistry between Freeman and Costner, I think is a great thing.
4: Yeah, they are good together. Like you, you you sort of suggested it was like a buddy movie before, and that a buddy cop movie almost. And it was, it was interesting in that way.
0: How many? Twenty. Twenty. How many? Oh, Five. <laughs> I can't count anyway. Come on. Why scare them? And they call me Barbarian.
1: And I did have a bit of a theory because we're going to get into Costner because he does seem to be the big problem for a lot of people in this film. But I think Kevin Reynolds may, and hear me out because it could be BS, I think he may have been trying to do what John Carpenter achieved with Big Trouble in Little China, where you have the main character being this archetypal hero and actually. The real protagonist is the sidekick because I get that sense with the dynamic between the two of them. Because Robin Hood is bested by everybody in the first hour of the film, and when he looks through that looking uh, the uh, the telescope, and he doesn't know when he points the sword, <laughs> he's made to look like a bit of, like a bit of a buffoon. <laughs> and uh, and I think that's what maybe Reynolds was maybe attempting. And and mm, uh, no, I'm
3: gonna do, I'm gonna say no. Costner is the main character. Robin is the main character. He's the drive. Like it, it, it's a vengeance plot for him, isn't it? That, it? That's how it's set up. When he's standing over his dad's grave, he says, oh, "I won't wrestle. I've had vengeance." And I it seems not. No, I, I disagree. But I know what he's saying. It's just no. <laughs>
4: Costner also, uh, <laughs> 12 of the sheriff's men, uh, earlier in the, <laughs> yeah. b- before, you know, uh, while Azim is praying, he, yeah. he actually he gets, gets down own. to it and kicks some ass. So, uh, yeah, I can see an elements of what you're saying, but I, I think Costner is proactive enough to, to, you know, be the main character, I think, still. Well,
3: Robin Hood walks on the back of four horses onto another horse and rides off and leads them into the, you know, he, he poo-poos the ghosts in the, in the forest and goes in. So he's not, you know,
1: he he has drive and direction. No, I'm not denying that he's not uh, our hero. Mazim really is like an overseer, a protector for him. And he gets him through the film. He saves him right at the end. I mean, otherwise Robin would have been killed by by Mortiano. That was what I was driving at. I don't think it was as explicit as Big Trouble in Little China. But I think Reynolds was maybe trying to do something different with the legend.
2: Well, he's he's not supposed to be super competent hero right off the bat. I think maybe that the, the 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 characterization of Robin is a bit inconsistent throughout which I think is maybe something that in retrospect people have had bigger problems with which is you're introduced to a guy who's willing to sacrifice his own hand to save somebody and like you said he's not willing incorrect. to he, he
3: knows he's going to get out of it though yeah. doesn't he I think that's why he wants to take the lead
2: yeah you know, he puts his hand on the on the, on the on the block um but then you know when he arrives in England and he's dancing around on the wall and stuff he's he's acting you know very kind of youthful and and, and silly and um i guess I don't know it's a weird one i think um I think people see it as being a, as being a very inconsistent performance I don't know what you guys think across the whole film as to whether he has an arc or whether um like you were saying Gally, the the sort of the slightly bumbling failures that he manages to just about get out of like being defeated twice by little John and only winning by knocking (laughs) him in the
4: balls with a bit of wood. There's some, some lines that suggest that he's, he has an arc, Uh, you know, that he has a quiet moment with Marion where he says nobility is defined by one's actions. It's not a birthright. And I don't think he left for the crusades with that attitude. Mm. And, I just enjoy the the Costner cheekiness really. He's he's running along the wall talking about Yasmina and another man's wife and all of that stuff. And then yeah. he has these little flourishes like uh, uh did you give yourself this name is a really cool little moment between them. That plays into to Galli's theory about the buddy cop stuff. It's really uh, the dynamic is really nice. Uh but he's often accused of being too lazy with his performances, but I I kind of like Costner's style. He just he doesn't overdo it. But he's, uh, he is he's very, very charming,
3: though, isn't he? He's charming, Robin Hood. Um, he, I think he does get that across as well. There's a specific point when he steals the ring from the lady in the carriage. Um, yeah, uh, uh and gives her a wink and uh, uh, smacks the carriage as he wa- walks off. And when he, uh, ho- holds up the next carriage, he's on the tree dangling and does a backflip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not say that's Costner, but yeah, uh, you know, for the, for the character that they're <laughs> developing, I, I think. This Robin Hood does have a lot of charm, and that's kind of the point of Robin Hood, isn't it? That he, he wins over the poor because the, the, there's a the line that the show says. Yeah. Let, let me get this straight. What does he say? Well, he's,
2: yeah, he's, he steals. He steals from me, making me hurt them. And, and I, I do.
1: It. I think that that is consistent throughout. But the one thing I really love about this film is that even though it's not Costner's, but the naked, the naked Costner, <laughs> I also miss. <may laughs> My, i do i miss the fact that my actors can just be a normal schlubby bloke because he hasn't got a six-pack he isn't ripped he's got a very
2: very white ass <laughs> <He's got>
1: a... <laughs> well Devlin, it wasn't him i think um it was a stunt but because uh i i read that he he really? was afraid of catching hypothermia yeah that was so he didn't he didn't do That's it very disappointing but...
3: The thing about that scene I could never get is how can he hear them shouting like, Robin, he's under a fucking waterfall. It's loud as
4: hell. He gets though. up there very fast as well. He's very quick to get to the top. So
1: fast. <laughs> Again, comparing it to sort of modern action heroes, I like the fact that Kevin Costner wouldn't make the front cover of Men's Health. Uh, he's literally just a normal bloke who hasn't got absolutely ripped for the part and I think that's the reason why um, mm. I defend him a little bit more than than probably people enjoy, because I did get asked by a listener, why do you love Kevin Costner so much? <laughs> oh, I love Costner. And I, th- and I just think it's because he kind of feels like one of us. A bit relatable. Like, just a bit salt of the earth. bit relatable, yeah. Mm.
3: All the cast, they, they say they like him as well. They say he's a very likable presence on the set and just a really likable guy at the time. Um, I haven't had anything too negative about him as a working uh how how he conducts himself
1: costner i'll give you one line reading and matt you and davlin you'll remember this one from Waterworld. you remember his boat yeah, the moment <laughs> i think that you can you, you, oh my boat well the the line reading that that kind of thuds in this one is when christian slater reveals that he's his brother mm. and costner just kind of falls into a trance and opens his mouth and blanks and just goes I have a brother. And and that is it. That was the moment. That was the moment where you felt like, no, Kevin, you really need to kind of dial that up slightly so we can really feel
4: it. There's an example of of how Costner behaves on set there because he uh, was pushing, along with Reynolds, for um, Christian Slater to do more emotionally. Christian Slater just wanted to be a cool character. He's 21 years old. He's in a Hollywood movie uh, and he's he's being forced to, to cry and tear up and, and have a scene like that and he didn't want to do it and that Costner and Reynolds pushed him to, to really go over the top emotionally and I think in, in turn Costner doesn't do too much in return, he just kind of embraces him.
0: Our father We're your brothers Robin of Luxley I am the son of the woman who replaced <laughs> your dead mother for a time it was your anger that drove it's them lie. Hard.
5: it's not a lie you ruined my life
0: I have more reason to hate you than anyone, but I found myself daring to believe in you. What I want to know, brother, is will you stay with us and finish what you started? I have a brother. I have a brother.
1: I'll make my stand with you, side by side, to the end. Oh, poor lad! And slate is dreadful in this. Unfortunately, I mean, he's he's a heartthrob. He's there for the teenage demographic, but um, yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's not great in this. Unfortunately, proper mm. nineties hair though,
2: great haircut. <laughs> mm-hmm. I got one one little line reading, which was my favourite slash least favourite line reading, which is actually. <laughs> Pretty much the capper on the entire film, which is when uh, we're rushing right to the end here. But everyone knows how this ends—no spoilers. That um, after uh, Mike McShane says uh, that, Me, you know, kiss the braid <laughs> and, and he says, "I know that." <laughs> 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 I wonder yeah, how, like, specific... I wonder how that looked on the page, and how many iterations of that they came up with.
3: Oh, it's not quite the uh, "I love you, I know" line from Star Wars, is it? Which I think is what they were going for. <laughs> yeah,
5: but the last mm, line of the film yeah. is
3: ridiculous from Friar Tuck, isn't it? He looks at the camera, the camera's dead in his
4: face, like, want I want to waste <laughs> celebration time?" good celebration what? time. What the fuck is it? You should talk so, about the, how everyone's Cornish.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, this is it. This is it. Like before we get into Rickman, let's let's just let's delve into the Merry Men and uh, and Fanny uh, because everyone, God bless Fanny, everyone, Fanny. Everyone, oh he likes the good hanging. We do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I said earlier about cultural appropriation. Please, our American cousins, and in fact, anyone internationally outside of the UK. We're not all from Cornwall, and we don't all just sound like that. Like that isn't how we used to talk. It's not just Cornwall,
3: That's more like, it's like Devon, uh, Cotswolds. Even e.
4: Duncan thinks Azim is from, uh, is Cornish. He goes, what manner of yeah. a name is Azeem?
2: <laughs> Cornish? <laughs> she
4: doesn't sound Cornish.
2: Some of the, although some of the, um, uh, uh, the sheriff's men later on sound a bit mank.
3: Yeah, there there are some the the lesser parts have more regional, don't they? That they, they, yeah. they actually sound a bit. But I always had a theory growing up that the reason that Costner and Slater were allowed to keep their American accents
1: was to simplify that they are brothers. <laughs> 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 These are the sticks that Costner gets beaten with uh, the accent because he, he tries it. I think for the first couple of scenes, and then you 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 can actually order you. <laughs> You can Well, you can orderly hear the difference when he becomes the real Robin Hood. Yeah. When he does the speech, I think you can hear his accents completely gone. And he's like, um, Crusades taught me that. And it's like, oh, yeah, the accent's completely <laughs> gone. The, infl- <laughs> the, the, the inflections have completely gone then. And to be fair, he's, he gets better in the film. We also have Connery as uh, Richard the Lionheart, but he's
4: playing oh, as oh, a Scotsman. Connery. So it doesn't really matter. He plays a
3: Scotsman, Matt. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> he's Connery. He doesn't give a fuck. He knows that he's a huge star, and if they want him, that's the accent they get. Yeah,
4: I've actually written yeah, down that it's, it's, uh... it's too critical of the accents. I, I think at the time, as a nine-year-old, who who cares? You know, it's only the older people that really noticed it, and and they're the only ones that it really bothered. Yeah.
1: Mm, well, and I think it's the same thing with with like I said, Titanic. I'm going to keep comparing them because. James Cameron knows that yes, authenticity, but Hollywood authenticity, you don't need to go to the granular details because realistically, who cares? And also these Hollywood films, they don't have the time to be that specific. If you're going to be, it has to be somewhat broad. And I don't mind that Costner's accent, I mean, the hair is the probably the one thing that doesn't date because <laughs> it not only is it a dreadful mullet, but it also changes length changes volume I mean there's a one yeah. point when it's massive buff- buffon and then there's another bit where it, it looks like it's you know he's losing his hair so it it has no consistency <laughs> don't just don't really care they do do
3: I don't know whether that's because I'm so ingrained into this film having watched it for the last 30 years or but 29 years but I these things just don't bother me anymore at all with this film at all.
4: Well, I remember when he cut his hair for the bodyguard, and everyone made a big deal of that. So I, I I never had a had a problem with it. But you know, I'm a big Costner fan, so
3: yeah, we might be
1: blinded, Matt. I think I think I think we all all are white (laughs) ass. Well, let's talk about Ritman. Everyone, everyone who's ever seen this film, love or hate it, um, I think can all recognise that Ritman is is having an, an absolute blast. And is deliciously evil, and uh, I, what I love, what I love most about it is that he's clearly like the the go-to man at that point for villainy. You know, everyone knows Hans Gruber in Die Hard, a really subtle, nuanced performance. And what I love about this film is that clearly Ritman went nah. <laughs> Pure pant, pure <laughs> pantomime is what I'm gonna do. And he he goes past eleven and he's into the stratosphere. And it's a different film, isn't it? Really, there are two films going on, and it's the ones with Ritman and the one with Kevin Costner. And well, he actually won a BAFTA for um,
3: best supporting role for this.
1: He did. And did you hear his acceptance speech? speech?
3: Yeah. Well, he, yeah. in his acceptance speech, he says, "So much for subtlety. This has taught me that I, I don't need to be subtle in in films." In his speech as well, he said what a huge fan of Kevin Reynolds was as well. He said he was his hero, which is was yep. a really nice thing. It's really cool.
4: Have we got favourite scenes? Well, I just have a bunch of lines. Uh, I don't know what your favourite line is. There's one in the <laughs> extended edition where he goes, I found the hole! which is quite oh, good. Yeah, the, yeah. The witch is looking <laughs> through the hole. Uh, and I, I don't know what other ones I like. I mean, some of them have aged quite badly. I know they're playful, but they, you know... I like the something vexes thee when, uh, that's not his line, but he kind of stabs at the table with a... Bang, with I, knife. Bang, 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 bang. I love it when he stabs yeah. <laughs> that.
3: Because that is just, a, like, that's the scene, isn't it? Slams the knife on about seven times, something vexes thee, cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: And there's one other in the extended that I really liked where he just tells a bird, uh, to shut up. That there's like a, a bird of prey in Mortiana's kind of, uh, uh, dungeon, and he just goes shut up to the bird. Kind of but weird.
3: also, when he turns to one of the barons at the at the uh execution scene, he's like,
5: "Shut up, you!" Swift. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
3: and he, lo- his delivery in this film is so good.
2: His um, his discovery of the the scar that's been drawn on his on his special statue <laughs> is pretty good. <laughs> just to get a good bit of comedy, yeah. stealing that dude's hat and spitting on it and trying to rub it. Up.
4: <laughs> uh, I have one other really nice one that I like, where he doesn't say anything. Uh, it's during the Celt attack, and all the, the fiery arrows are being shot. And it cuts to him on a on a horse, and he's just picking his teeth.
1: Yes, he, yeah, just, yeah. you know, just, just like he couldn't, have, he didn't have a care in the world. We all point towards the, the the more comedic moments, but the opening for the character, I remember as a kid, quite scared when he takes the mask off, and they're in the white robes, and they've surrounded. Um, Loxley's, uh castle. I found that to be quite affecting, mm-hmm. and there is a little bit of menace in there. You know, he is—he's cruel. Oh, completely. You he wouldn't he's, want to cross in his first line. When, when, when,
3: uh, Second line is like, "Join us or
2: die." In timing out the the plot and uh, making sure he doesn't become too broad, the the scene between him and uh, Michael Wincott in the uh, in the armory, yeah, is is calibrated really is really well timed throughout the story to remind you that this guy. He's not yeah. just, you know, a kind of a, a bumbling villain type. Like, that. he is, ruthless as fuck. Well, it, it, don't he doesn't really just play st- it the laughs. He just, he just yeah. kind of stabs him and then walks away.
3: He's so dangerous in that mm-hmm. scene, though, isn't he? Because he, he, he's nonchalant. He, he's, a, you know, he's cool. He's calm. And it's the way he goes, cousin. You know, mm-hmm. like that warming, cousin, don't worry, stab. It's, yeah, it's a very good scene.
4: Well, Penn Densham and John Watson on their commentary on the, on the DVD talk about the sheriff a little bit and how he was originally conceived as a more of a Darth Vader-esque ultimate baddie. And they, they, they put in a lot of this new humor to offset that and make it more original. And that's where all these rumors of Ruby Wax and people like that writing lines for, for Rickman came in. And there's a quote from them that said, if Goliath was five foot six, no one would remember David. So your good guy is only as good as your baddie. And, uh, you know, Vader is a good example of that. And Rickmans just, just knocks it out of the park.
3: Well, isn't there no, totally... of, uh, some of the lines were he just invented, Matt, and people on set didn't know what he was going to say some of the times.
4: Well, Reynolds, I think just went with it and uh, it was all done quite secretly. It wasn't approved by the studio, a lot of that stuff that he mm. said. And he just snuck it in and it's great. It really lifts it.
3: Well, this is and then, mm-hmm. this is the difference, Galley, between the theatrical and the extended cut. Because, if I may, just go into a bit more backstory with with the film. Uh, it there was concerns that the film was too much of an Alan Rickman film in the edit towards the end. And uh, in the extended edition, we get 12 more minutes and they're predominantly Alan Rickman and Sharon Nottingham scenes with mm-hmm. his relationship with that the reveal that she's uh, his, his mother, her sneaking around and spying on them, which is why she's able to predict everything so well. And more Rickman, which is, is great. I'm not complaining about more Rickman, but it, it, in the end, like I, Kevin Reynolds ended up getting locked out of the editing room when they were editing, yeah, and yeah. He, he was kicked out. And Costner essentially took over, and those Rickman things were kind of taken away. And um, those cuts also helped it for a more family-friendly audience because to take away uh, a lot more of the d- demonic, satanic, uh, ritualistic elements to to Uh But that that's crazy, isn't it? To lock out your, the director. Costner and Reynolds are friends mm. you know Reynolds helped him with Dances with Wolves with uh, I know you like this story Gally, if you'd explain his role in that film please
1: Yeah he um he shot the buffalo sequence um so Kevin Costner was in the middle of the action so can't can't necessarily go back and to the monitors and check out uh, the shots so he asked his friend Kevin Reynolds who um he worked with on Fandango and we we mentioned their history and and their their recent history uh, they've collaborated since this film with Waterworld and then they collaborated again even though Waterworld was another one where the film seemed to be taken away from Kevin Reynolds uh, and and they worked on uh, the film oh that tv, TV show. show
2: Hatfield and McCoy's
1: Hatfield and McCoy's yeah Which, uh, thank you very much david um, very well received yeah that was quite recent so and, and i remember in Waterworld so i'm not going to regurgitate the things that i said about Kevin Reynolds in that uh, episode, but, um, I may, I may harken back to it talking about certain sequences in this, but it's just one of those things, isn't it? I think that history about the film, knowing that Costner may have been feeling like he was being usurped by Rickman is also used as a bit of a stick to beat him with. Um, because obviously it sounds like there's, there's a, an A list actor who's getting a bit precious, yeah. but I actually think the theatrical version is better for. The, those scenes. that why? I, Patrick, be I in think only totally
3: it's more even and it, it it's more succinct, isn't
4: it? There's a problem with the scribe. Did you notice the problem with the scribe and cutting out the scribe's tongue? In in the extended yeah, it comes
1: back doesn't it?
4: M- Mortiana, yeah, Mortiana tells the sheriff to cut out his uh, his tongue, uh, yeah. the tongue that offends you or something, and and. But then he, he says up the stairs that way at the end of the, of the film. So, (laughs) and, and previous to that, he writes on a chalkboard to communicate. So it's all over the place. Uh, But, uh, the, it's, it's a bit muddled, uh, in the extended. So uh, I don't know if Reynolds had anything to do with this extended cut because on the commentary, he says, uh, that I'm, I'm really happy you put this stuff back in. He's talking to someone as if uh they're working from a work print or a, a, not necessarily a work print but a, a previous cut that they just went to and it, it just it doesn't feel quite thoroughly thought out but i think i prefer the theatrical because that's the one i saw the most but yeah i do like yeah. the, the mortiana storyline and uh, when it's a bit more overt it's interesting that because i haven't seen the
2: extended version so i didn't see that the, the cow tongue thing and the and the chalkboard and because, uh, one thing that the screenplay is quite good at is, uh, is very good, quite blatant signposting of this thing will come up again later. Marion's dagger being given to Robin mm-hmm. in the, in the big treehouse full of treasure and that being the thing which, which kills, uh, the sheriff at the end, that kind of stuff. It's all like, it's all planted and paid off quite well.
4: Yeah, that's great. The medallion and the dagger. And also, um, if you think it goes, uh, the dagger was the sheriff's who gave it to Marion who gave it to Robin, who stabs the sheriff in the heart with it. And it's mm. kind of like a poetic justice moment. And there's also some stuff with his father's sword and a, a redemption yeah. there with, during the battle with the sheriff.
1: I, I also think it, it, it speaks to how clean the story is. So we were kids when we first saw this, and we obviously hold dear to those memories. But I think the film, even though there's 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 muddled, um, there's inconsistencies all over the place in characters, in in like you say, the scribe's tongue removed, then then back on, all that kind of stuff. But thematically and the way that they structure the film, I think it's quite clean. The good guys and the bad guys are very very clearly defined. Mm-hmm. Everything's done in pairs, so we have the friar against the reverend. We have weirdly the one that doesn't make any sense mm-hmm. is Mor- Mortiana and and Azim because they have some sort of. Crazy connection.
4: Well, she says that he haunts her dreams, but if, if she's not clairvoyant, then how is he even in her dreams? It uh, she all makes just it
1: up because she? she's eavesdropped. Yeah, and Dave
3: yeah. tells uh, Nottingham that he travels with someone, so she hears that and makes it up for right. storytelling yeah. purposes. And then Loxley's at the end, companion, that bit—that's yeah, it. That's the one. Mm. And then later, for Azim, he knows that the sheriff has a witch, so. That moment at the end in the theatrical mm. release, the sound a bit more clairvoyant and, and in her eye, where she says, "The painted man, the witch," but in fact,
1: yeah. they, they are aware of each other. That that's the point of it. Azim reacts at the fire. They say, um, "Oh, there's Ruby. Yeah. She's got a witch," yeah. and he he literally says, "A witch."
2: It would be um, it would be a bit of a, a shame and maybe undercut what we're saying about how it's uh, uh, somewhat. Positive portrayal of a, of a Muslim character if you were basically equating Muslims to witchcraft <laughs> as being. <laughs> yeah. it,
4: it suggests he's aware of
3: Then The friar just says, You are truly a wizard when he invents. Um... Mm. Yeah, he yeah, does.
4: Yeah, he, yeah, does. Yeah, he, he does
2: all the wizards. I think, we are, what I think we are straying into this kind of magical territory here.
1: Mm-hmm. Well no and i i i wrote it down in my notes uh devlin because as much as i do think azim is a positive represent, representation uh spike lee coined the phrase the magical negro in reference to uh the uh, coffee character in green mile yes. uh, so a, a black character right. that comes mm-hmm. in and and basically has magical powers of healing or redemption to solve issues for yeah. the white characters in the in the story and there's a little bit of that when Azim um oh god this sounds really weird doesn't it helps Fanny pull the baby yeah. out of her <laughs> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> but yeah there's, there's a there's a little bit of that isn't there and um mm. i guess it it speaks to the idea of uh white writers writing yeah, it's uh like characters I think like a
2: lot of the stuff that we talk about in, in a lot of these films it comes across as in the it's more in the realm of clumsy but well-meaning there's
3: certain things like this just don't, they don't age well nowadays anyway with the deeper yeah. context but I, I don't see anything malicious in, in any of the storytelling.
1: No, I don't. And, and the, the reason, the main reason I don't see it in this film is when the child speaks to Azim. Salam, little
4: one.
5: Did God paint you?
0: Did God paint me? <laughs> Why? Because
4: Allah loves wondrous variety.
1: Morgan Freeman's reaction is so sincere. He's sort of like the innocence of a child who's never seen yeah, uh, anyone exactly. of color. And he, and he obviously at that point, that's when the friar comes in and is, is still, still racist. Uh, he well, there's a message there name. too.
4: I mean, Penn Densham talks about it in the, in his commentary, uh, that moment where he says, he puts forth this idea that they each share the God of Abraham, that they, they're actually worshiping the same God, you know, Christianity and Islam. So, you know, Friar Tuck is having none of it. But Pendensham talks about this idea of, uh, you know, binding people and despite their their backgrounds. And that was one of his goals as a writer to kind of bring everyone together, no, no matter what religion. It cannot be born without help. Huh? He is a devil's seed sent to lead us astray. Don't listen to him; he will kill her. If you do not listen to me, she will certainly die, and the child. No! the good friar's
0: done all he can i suggest you let them all try
5: so be it be it on your head i warned you
3: i like that there's a quick fix between the and the friar as well matt you know Mm -hmm. he he's just accused him and he's quite scared of him that way but then when he helps fanny give birth um I do love the way uh, uh little John comes out. was like, oh, my boy! I love that kind of <laughs> <line>. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> He's so, dr- but I-, I like that there's a quick fix in the story between them, you know. And he says, "Come mm-hmm. on, he's let's through." Very cruel drink. to
4: him. He's really he says, yeah, He's, yeah. kill- he's going to kill her. He's- he'll kill her. Yeah. Uh, so you know, but it's redemptive. He he sees sense in the end. He's probably just drunk. though. No, 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 no,
5: no. no, 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 no. father! No! I've got, I've got x <laughs>
4: Truly great
5: one. My son! Look at that lovely little lady. is wonderful? I'm not God, he's beautiful! Today the Lord has taught me a fine lesson. That though I may think I am godly, I know I am not worldly. please. Come, my barbarian friend, so you and I open a barrel together and do our best to save each other's souls. Alas, I am not permitted. Oh, find then, you talk, I'll drink. <laughs>
1: he's, on the, he's on the Lord's brew throughout the whole film, so yeah, he's probably just a little bit wasted. Uh, but just one, one final quick point on the simplicity of the, the structure of the film. I like the fact that they just completely remove the politics out of it um again to harken back to the 2010 ridley scott film that is all politics and oh, i don't yeah, want to see yeah. that i'm a robin yeah. hood i don't like i don't really care like this film clear heroes and villains it's basically star wars but in the hood and and you're just like yeah i get it i completely understand and the fact that they get rid of prince um richard or prince john sorry mm. uh, again i think it's a masterstroke because you just say right here's the sheriff he's the big bad don't mm-hmm. worry about all the political nonsense that's yeah. going on in the background with these barons. He's oppressing the people. We don't even really see the oppression that much. We just see a, a little town get burnt down. Yeah. We don't need to. We just see a little <laughs> town get burnt down. Look what they did to my boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
3: we, we do see yeah. more.
2: I think it's interesting, Matt, that um, that you've you've read like some of the thoughts of uh, of Pendencion the writer because. Um, Watching it back uh, uh, recently, the only things that, that sort of crept in is um, the way they discuss the the Crusades, and don't they say that um, it's like it's vanity to try and force one's religion on another man?
4: Yeah, there's a line yeah. something that, that's like, one uh, of the quotes. Yeah, yeah, and and this idea that Azim and Robin have both lost. Their homes to a foolish endeavor something like that and uh, that the, the, those two characters are tied through this this thing that's actually brought them together that should be tearing them apart but mm-hmm. it is actually uniting them for the purposes of this film at least
2: so yeah so it's, it's quite a nice kind of um, you know just, uh, uh, a pacifistic message but one that doesn't take its time to, to make itself particularly massively obvious. It plays out through through character mm. motivations more than
4: anything else. Uh, he has great intentions. I, I, I think it's, it's all... Uh, he saw this as his opportunity to say something positive, and I think he, he took it. And the commentary is really good. If you do get the extended cut, there's a commentary with Penn Dentium, John Watson, who are producers and writers, and uh, Christian Slater and uh, Morgan Freeman, who are completely useless. Uh, Morgan Freeman <laughs> remembers nothing, <laughs> and... Uh, 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 Christian Slater only speaks when he's on screen and he says uh-oh a lot uh, and aside from that doesn't really offer any any uh, intelligent thought
1: well, that's a shame because I, I every time I listen to a commentary now, if it's not done in the style of Arnold Schwarzenegger where he describes what is going on <laughs> on screen, then I just I
2: choose not to watch it. And you see now, do oh, you like I'm, it? Then. I'm, yeah. I'm working for yeah. the witness protection program, but I have a really fucking massive gun, so I can shoot everybody.
1: <laughs> uh, you, you can see here, I'm meeting with Sarah Connor, and we're talking about how if she comes with me. She would live. Yeah, it's great. It's his commentary is uh, <laughs> a epic. Um final final sort of main principal character. Maid Marion, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, got that one down from Scarface. Um she was <laughs> drafted in, wasn't she? Like four days before filming. It yeah. was supposed to be Robin Wright, but she fell uh yeah. she felt pregnant. I think she's really good in this. Uh I, I really like her. I think I think she's um she's she's not given a hell of a lot to do. Uh, certainly in the, in the second half of the film. But what she is given, I think she really does excel. And uh, I love the fact that they 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 at least attempted, I think you've got to remember the context, 1991. So a really pivotal year, I think, for females in action films. You think Terminator 2 and Thelma and Louise. And this made Marion... Is a ninja, yeah. and I do quite like that. Like <laughs> yeah. it's just her opening, it's she, she, uh, she. Uh, it's, I don't understand why she just him in her, the uh, Robin, Robin Hood, because she <laughs> must know who he is. But, but yeah, the fact that she's there fighting an an independent, strong female character, it's quite refreshing, even thirty years ago. Mm, yeah, I like her
4: in Color of Money as well. I'm a big fan of her in uh, in that, and yeah, she's great in Scarface. And I, I thought she was a, a really as soon as she had four days or something to prepare for it she's she's done a great job with made Mary it's um
2: I, I, yeah it's 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 a shame that the the character minimizes as the plot develops around her mm-hmm.
5: Mm-hmm. um the, yeah.
2: the, the the work she puts in doesn't get any worse at all it's just that yeah she is introduced as a ninja
4: We did know that she's reduced to the, the damsel in distress in the castle at the end though. That's, that's more of a a storytelling problem than anything she's doing, but she plays it, she plays it really well. But also, but
3: she does get involved in like, you know, she throws, throws the a candle into Nottingham's chest. She doesn't go down without a fight and Mm -hmm. we have spoken about, uh, on screen chemistry before, get galley dev and, you know, they, ha- I think Costa and her have this I- in this film, and I do believe in their relationship and an attraction, well, well, kind of longing with each other. And there's that beautifully shot scene, scene where the silhouette by the boat when Duncan's going to take her back, and the music, well, of course, the music, like really adds to the scene. But I do buy their relationship. And two, yes, two. You're King Richard's cousin. Can get word to him of Nottingham's plan.
0: He would believe you.
5: If the sheriff found out, I could lose all that I have.
0: It's true. But will you do it for your king?
5: No. I'll do it for you.
0: you, my lady. I am blind, but some things I can still see. I
3: don't know, Matt. I, I dance a sort the of stress. Yes, but. I like her defiance, you know, wearing Robin's necklace to the wedding as a symbol and all of that. She still has good character throughout the, the, well, it's, the- it's true
4: during that attempted rape she's she's very strong and uh yeah. there's, there's some odd comedic moments thrown in, but she she holds her own, you know, uh, and you line. really do feel for her. You may
3: take yeah. this body but it will not be me
4: and it, yeah. it's a really- she's resisting to the end.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think she's really, really strong in this. And, and that scene in particular you were mentioning, Patrick, um, yes, Michael Kamen's score is, 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 ele- is elevating it, but she is also selling it. And I think Costner's good. He looks the part in that, in that scene, definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah. and, and I, I also love, and I'll make mention of Duncan one last time. I love the line when he's like, I think he quite fancies you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I may be blind. <laughs> But there are still some <laughs> things I can see. <laughs> it's, just, it's just such a wonderful and endearing line, and um, I guess I guess what it speaks to is I get so much more emotional attachment to Duncan and uh, and Azim than maybe Robin. You know, when Robin the, the fake out is he is he or is he not dead? Obviously, I know he's not dead, but I don't really feel the emotional weight of that. But I do when Duncan goes. I'm genuinely mm-hmm. quite cut up when uh, when Duncan dies, especially because.
4: And how he does it too, because he's delivering the message, it's an important, uh, plot point for Duncan.
3: But he also let them to them. Oh no. Oh no, there's another Duncan moment that's brilliant, Um 'cause cause he's, well, obviously he's lost his eyes, he goes, Le- lead me to them, I'm ready.
5: That's
3: when, that's with Ninja Marians kicking Robin's ass.
2: Well, when we were talking about uh, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio, the um, the the one thing that that she does do, uh, again, like we said, that she was doing uh, good work with what she had during the fight scene, but the moment when uh, when uh, uh Rickman finally dies. And she, instead of you know being all celebratory, she looks over at Robin, and you just the the weird like whimper that she gives, yeah, it's like she has had a fucking terrible day. Like she's just <laughs> she is destroyed, which is you know, it's cool. It gives it a, it gives it a bit of a weight that it might not have otherwise had if she'd have just dashed over there and given him a hug. She's just like, yeah. fucking destroyed.
3: Mm. There is there is another uh, noise that she makes that always makes me laugh though is when they're having the party in the forest and uh Slater comes over like can I just dance and she's she goes like,
5: <laughs> <"Wah-ha-ha!"> <laughs> it's really, really
3: weird, like that she makes I'll always remember that like
5: Wah-ha-ha! yeah
3: <laughs> her noise
4: acting is <laughs> well on point
3: yeah well, one of my favourite bits in it is uh, you got Azim he's playing with the gunpowder. And this is new thing, uh, which is cool. And they, they've just been defeated by the Barbarian Horde and, um, Robin's been assumed dead. Uh, Will Scarlet's just come back and they're planning, they're plotting their revenge on the castle. Uh, is it Nottingham Castle? I'm, I can't remember. Yep. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And one of my favorite bits always when I was a kid, I used to think it was the coolest fucking thing was the model castle that he had in front of him talking him through everything. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I, I love the way he's pointing like, You go here, you go there. And I used to make little things like that in my garden. And I used to have like a little tree house that I so made my own bows and arrows and thought I was fucking Robin Hood. And I to to no one in particular, I was just like, "You go there, you go there." But, uh, <laughs> I love the way Fanny gets involved. It's like six men and go seven, and I, I love that Fanny gets involved there, and he leaves the knife in. But the whole next sequence, the the. The sneaking in the dropping the swords down the bow in the staff the putting the barrels in the right place the joke about the leper is this your finger i this is all wonderful to me all the prep and the anticipation when the boy sees will scarlet it's like Trader, string him up put him on the barrel oh shit what's gonna happen <laughs> Fuck, I love all this next section and I didn't know until very recently when we were when I knew we were doing this. I didn't know that castle was built in Shefton Studios, so that's the fucking set that castle it's the most incredible set it looks amazing. I would, I would have given it anything to have worked on that. you know if you would give me any scene or anything to work on in in history right now tomorrow would be my next job. it would be that fucking scene because I love it so much oh wow. uh, and everything <laughs> about it and the, the huge action like the 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 explosions I even like i every time i see him, i'm like yeah it was when robin fires the flaming arrow in slow motion at the executioner's head so all, all of that is great to me
4: it, it's it's the the 300 frames per second yes. flaming flaming arrow apparently they used the the cameras that they used to film bullets coming out of guns it was the only way they could do it at the time and it's this 300 frames per second super slow mo and it goes right into the the hangman's head and it's just the coolest thing i think it's probably one of my favorite pieces of action ever put on film it's just satisfying every time that the build to it the cutting uh the sound design he he punches one of the guards uh and kind of finds the flaming arrow on the ground and it's it's set up really well because there's a scene earlier where um wolf is practicing his Mm. uh archery and they're talking about but can you do it uh amidst Amidst distraction. distraction Yeah. And, and Robin doesn't make the shot. So it's very fitting that he, he makes the shot to save Wolf, who's hanging from, from the noose at the time. So that's my number one favorite moment. I'll rewind that and, and watch that, you know, uh, endlessly. It's fantastic.
3: I love those shots, Matt, of the arrow. It's like the spinning arrow to, to free Wolf yeah. and the arrow that goes into the center of the tree. Um, there's a POV arrow shot earlier on.
4: I, I love all of that. Yeah, there was pre CG, but the kind of early opticals, and uh, I guess, and I don't. It's only just moments. Most of the the action in in the film is is practical, but there's just a couple of little shots like that that they kind of tweaked and, and added opticals for. But yeah, they're really cool.
1: Well, th- this entire um, sort of climactic battle is is what I think Kevin Reynolds is really good at and we talked about it in water didn't we that the best moments for for certainly for me and devlin i know that you might have got a, a little bit more of a deep-seated love for that film but his he's he's great at doing action set piece moments mm. and and the fact that for robin hood if you think robin hood you immediately go to that iconic image of the bow on fire i don't think you you think of another image you don't think of Errol Flynn anymore. You really do think of that. And, and again, it's testament that the Russell Crowe version, they just stole that poster and just put Russell Crowe in the same version. Yeah. And it wasn't on, wasn't on fire, which meant it wasn't as good. <laughs> But that is, that is literally the iconic moment. And I defended Kevin Reynolds a little bit in War because he's not one of those directors that's particularly well-known or got a particular... Well, I actually would argue he has got a particular style, but it's not one that is championed, uh, terribly. You know, I've compared him to sort of Renny Harlan, a, a really good Hollywood action mm. director that if you hired him, he'll deliver the goods. But the, some of the sequences, including, well, it's interesting. You said the barbarian horde that the Celts that attack the, uh, the village, mm. uh, again, yeah. yeah, is, I, I think, I think that is, and this might sound sacrilegious. I think that is a better sequence than Ridley Scott's Gladiator, Barbarian Horde, because I don't like the shutter speed <laughs> stuff that he uses. I can't argue I, against I that. You, really? you understand all of the dramatic stakes that are going on, just like you do in the yeah. sequence you described, Patrick, and it's all done like a bank heist, that, that end. Well, you know, everyone's we haven't kind really of spoken a the little cinematography,
3: moments. really, but I mean, it's a really well shot film, I think, and I, I along with the editing and the coverage of these action set pieces, you know, Kevin Reynolds knows how to, to piece together uh, a set piece, certainly. But the
4: way, I love the way it's shot. I like the shot selection and everything. It's, it's all great. The uh, aspect ratio is kind of odd. It was shot at 166, which is the uh, European widescreen, not the standard American uh, 185. So I don't know what was going on, whether it was a British production or uh, th- there is some history with 166. It was the, uh, the chosen aspect ratio for kubrick he shot Co- uh, clockwork orange barry Lyndon, strange love and paths of glory but he actually presented it in 166 so when we see robin hood today we're actually seeing a slightly cropped version from what reynolds composed uh and they, they reference it on the commentary when apparently when you see or, or when you did see uh effects plates when you're going to add effects to your movie. You see the actual full frame and Costner and Reynolds both remarked upon, Oh, we should have shot the film like that, Uh, but everything needs to be cropped. So you take a little off the top and the bottom to get it to that American one eight five. But um, if you get one of the original Laserdiscs or VHS, that's one of the only way ways you can see Reynolds' original compositions. But okay. it looks looks terrific.
1: Mm. Oh, okay. that's 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 interesting. I, I will. Um, I don't know what you thought, Devlin. The way that he constructs the scenes with the sheriff, I do think, are maybe a tad too much. He does it a lot in Waterworld. He likes to get really close up into. Um, oh, yeah, the Dennis Hopper face, yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yeah the William S. Eye, And I do think it's probably overdone in the sheriff scenes. But it is a good dichotomy versus the open spaces and open range of the forest with Robin. But the other bit that I don't really like is, and this is where the, the men in tights thing doesn't work for me, is the dungeon for Morciana is is like... The crystal base, like there's lights going on in the background okay. that don't I make was, any sense. I was
2: legitimately just about to say when you were like, "Oh, any any scenes that you really like?" I was just about to say her first introduction of I- exactly that, her medieval zone, fucking <laughs> 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 with frogs and mutes and unmotivated yeah. green smoky lights and a fucking laser.
3: <laughs> there's a laser going on in the background. It's I crazy.
2: Watching that again this this week. I absolutely (laughs) loved it because I just looked at us like this is so (laughs) stupid. I (laughs) am 100 percent on board. This is ridiculous. Like it's uh it's I was it was strange watching it back because so much of this film was completely like burned into my memory, like whole sequences, especially like you were talking about the 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 scene towards the end, the whole no blades, no bows, leave you weapons here, all that. Every every second of that is burned into my memory, but the early going of this film, especially like, um, you know, the the attack on Brian Blessed's castle, a lot of that I was I was a little sketchy on. So I'd forgotten, for example, that the portrait of Robin in Brian Blessed's <laughs> living room is fucking Looks ridiculous. nothing <laughs> like
4: Costner. He <laughs> yeah.
5: looks like uh, Hayaki. He looks like the, the, the sad clown. <laughs> oh, I have a Blessed
4: trivia for that part. Apparently that the horse rolled over on Brian Blessed and he just Ooh. got up and... Uh, got on with it and they they called him they described him as a trooper but I can imagine him doing that he also has the best ever line reading of you I've never heard anyone say yeah. you <laughs> like that
2: <laughs> you is an entire paragraph not just yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> oh, I forgot bless was in it you know until yeah. last night and uh, he's one what, of what his uh, you know he's not large as life in this but his voice is great isn't it and it really uh, it is this film knows where to bring it like good actors in, you know, Connery at the mm-hmm. end, he, oh, despite the accent. But yeah. There are talking of silly moments, there's two I'd like to mention as well. And I I didn't quite get how ridiculous the um catapulting over the castle was till recently and I was like, <laughs> oh my god, that is fucking bonkers. Because it, <laughs> it just is. But also, you know when um the end of the defeat in the forest and Robin's gone and they're they're burying the dead and then came and score comes in again and then robin's on the hill with the silhouette what mm-hmm. the fuck is lighting him
2: oh my god because like- oh no, I mean-
3: <laughs> 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 that light does not belong there in the forest backlit from low it's all white and the uh oh it's i was looking at like wow this is i mean it's cinematic certainly but what the hell is going on well
1: just like the dungeon if you start picking the bones at the unmotivated yeah, light, um, you are gonna you are gonna be I, in trouble with this one. Cause...
2: I like how how willing they are to just go just silly. Fuck it. it well, d- does
4: anyone remember the name of the uh, the Kiwi cinematographer that worked on Lord of the Rings? Does anyone? Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, he, no, he died no, I fairly remember. recently. I, I can't recall yeah. his name right now. But he he had a quote where someone once asked him on set, "Where is the light coming from?" And he and what he said back was the same place as the music which <laughs> I really loved uh, not everything has to be motivated it just yeah. has to, to look good and be and be appropriate for the film
1: like you say we're dealing in in fantasy here I think this is one of the reasons why I'd sort of take umbrage with vote going back and kind of um, and saying how trashy and crap this film is because I just think you're not in the spirit of it mm. like Fryer took at the end turns to the camera and tells you it's celebration yeah. time this is not high <laughs> art this is not this is not a film to be taken seriously and picked apart
2: it's it's so kind of unabashedly cheesy it's like it's it's totally low hanging fruit shooting fish in a barrel whatever metaphor you want that if you want to go into this film and you want to take the piss out of it then you can quite easily do so but yeah you're right you you're missing the entire point it's it's pure entertainment
3: I will say I wasn't taking the piss out of it it was just I I was more marveling at uh, it no, Oh no! Yeah, no,
1: his I... name
4: was uh, Andrew Lesney, by the way.
2: Oh, okay.
1: Andrew Lesney. Um, but yeah, not
2: not the yeah. not the unmotivated light thing. That is a fair and funny reference. It's more that um, I, much like Ali, I've seen a couple of like retrospective modern day like retrospective written reviews. There was one on the AV Club, I think, and there was one on the Guardian as well that I had a quick look at, and both of them had had kind of they were just piling on to this film. One of them was saying that it's basically unwatchable. And what? Other one, yeah the av club in 2014 maybe 2014 2015 said that 25 years later this film is
1: essentially unwatchable
3: oh fuck off <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah no i think I, I i'm with you on that one patrick i think that's that's complete rubbish. and uh in the guardian there was one in the guilty
2: pleasures series and it, again it was a guy kind of saying i can't defend any of this
1: oh so my god i have no guilt i love this film <laughs> the other actor that um, I want to give credit to is the Ian McShane lookalike, who is Little John, who is fantastic in this film. Yeah. yeah, he's so good. His eyes are incredible. Yeah. You know, we were talking about, like, uh, leaps in logic. Here's the other one, but I love the scene. When Robin and Azeem, uh enter the forest and they're crossing the river and they have their little battle... I think it's great. It's again, it's playful, it's fun, um but there are well, consequences to it. it
3: is, I, I think in that whole scene, these are some of the lines that Nick Brummel has to deliver. Uh, <laughs> some of the words. Um uh, bollocks, tosspots, plummage, yeah. yeah. my, my old cucker and I'll <laughs> My favourite, I'll be buggered.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll be buggered. <laughs> he's from Bristol, so I mean, he's true. The extended cut has, I think, three, two or three additional I'll be buggered, so if you're a fan, <laughs> go for the extended. We're not through yet. Alright, my old
0: cocker. You want another good walloping? You should have one. <laughs>
5: I made it past
0: the gate, John Little.
4: Or should I call you Little John? Hit him uh, also, it was nearly played by uh Russ Abbott. Do you remember Russ oh Abbott, UK oh comedian? Yeah. Oh he cool. was first choice for uh Little John, but he was busy, which I find amazing, but <laughs> He, uh, you know, it, it worked out for the best,
1: I think. Oh, wow. No, it really did, because uh, genuinely, he, he doesn't really have a, an adversary as such. Like doesn't, He doesn't have a pairing like Robin and Nottingham and Azim and the witch, but him and the story with Fanny and the child, it's it's given, like, limited screen time, but you feel it when, when he's crying for, for Fanny across the way during the, during the oh, siege the on, the, on the yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I feel the emotion in that when he's like, I will not leave you. And I'm just like, go, Robin, save them. Well, I
4: would I'd put that as an an
1: honorable mention
4: for one of the best scenes as well. The, the, I kind of get chills every time he dives onto that rope and, and swings across that kind of very daring rope swing to save Fanny and and the baby. It's very after the flaming arrow. I'd say that was my second favorite moment. It's great.
3: I do like the aerial shot of the rope burning, you know, like the danger. Uh, Did Costner do his own
4: stunts for a large part of this as well? Some of them, uh, the the rope swing was uh, partially him and partially uh, stuntman. They talk about in the commentary called Nick and Costner tells this story of how the two of them went uh, looking for magic mushrooms. And if you, uh, (laughs) during one of the filming days and they found, Nick would tell him how you know what they looked like and how to find them and he said, If you eat one, it will tell you where the other ones are. And then they would just go go off into the woods and look for these uh, magic mushrooms. And and Costner said on the commentary that he didn't he didn't take one during filming, but on the way home in the car he he ate a few of them. So wow. Well you know uh,
2: Yorkshire's rich pickings for magic mushrooms. Just it is. If any of you were ever interested.
1: The one thing I will point out because we talk about favorite scenes and this is something that I've only just been aware of. And now we're all aware of it in rewatching this, I sought out the myth legend man <laughs> documentary as hosted by the one and only Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> For no reason. If you have
0: never, but no reason whatsoever,
1: <laughs> if you've never seen it and you're listening to this episode, now you would have heard him in the introduction of the episode anyway. Um, but you have to watch that documentary. It's on YouTube. We will put the link in the show notes. So if you don't go back and revisit Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, for crying out loud, just Ooh. click on that link and watch the 30-minute documentary. It is unbelievable. <laughs> Long live Robin Hood.
3: <laughs>
2: Indeed. There's Indeed. In the um, days of yore when cows were <laughs> only as big as much as
4: it's like he's doing Shakespeare I don't know yeah. who told him what he was doing but it's like he's doing Othello or something he's kind of staring into the mid-distance oh. and his pauses are so long
2: is he wearing uh, a leather bowler jacket or have I just he
4: put
1: me okay. <laughs> he yeah he's got his glasses too he does look like Doctor Angelo in Law yes. Man. He's wearing the it's like he's just come off set and he's now auditioning for another role. And oh and they just said, Read these lines and he really does commit and it's so funny. It, I just I loved it. Absolutely <laughs> loved that
2: documentary. Just um one sequence that maybe um stuck out in, in my, my rewatch as being a uh, um one that I thought preemptively before watching might be one that I dragged a bit. But I genuinely didn't find that this film dragged in any point, really. But um, the, the building of the new kind of uh, the treehouse village and, you know, the, the training montages and everyone having a lovely time and robbing all the people uh, in, in my head. I was thinking, oh, maybe that was a bit that's going to sort of drag because, you know, generally speaking, depicting people being cheerful and stuff is a bit annoying, but it comes across really well. Like it's it's uh it's quite a it's it's quite breezy and and really likable. And I think a huge part of much like I think you were saying, Patrick, that you had, you know, you would recreate whole sequences and you had a tree house and stuff. The I think probably the reason this struck such a chord with with kids of our generation was just that's like a playground, like that whole sequence. Yeah it's just the most incredible mm-hmm. playground. Uh even more so than like Ewok Village or whatever.
4: Yeah, that's weird that the toy actually um, the toy of that uses the same mold as um, uh, Return of the Jedi.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, so yeah, if yeah. you
4: look at the, look at the yeah. toys for Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and the Return of the Jedi, Star Wars toys, they use the same mold. But there's there's um, something else that was really hard for them to do. They couldn't damage the trees um, because it was National Trust or whatever. Right. It was not the new forest. So isn't it? The, yeah, they, they mm-hmm. couldn't put nails in, so they had to do everything just by tying it and, uh, and they were, they had all this action going on and without damaging the trees, which was a, a real achievement too. I, I had one other moment, uh, from the DVD making of, which is probably, I think it's the Pierce Brosnan hosted one. There's only <laughs> one on the disc. Uh, and there's this great moment where, uh, during the Celt attack, uh, it, there's just some B-roll of Costner and Reynolds together, uh, and, and Reynolds is, uh, directing him. It. It's fascinating to see um costner actually suggests uh quote something stylistic by taking three arrows drilling them into the ground and then taking them and firing them one by one Mm. and you can actually see the moment on the dvd it was actually costner's idea to do that and it's in the movie so i I love those kind of things on dvds where you actually see those moments take shape and a great moment an Mm. iconic moment didn't actually come from reynolds it actually came from from costner which is quite revealing
3: i do like how the film starts off um just just a sub thing here uh where peter gets shot by bow and arrow and we don't with the first time we see uh robin hood with a arrow, it's a crossbow we don't Mm. get him with a bow till maybe an hour in or i don't know and i do quite like that um is withholding he, is he, is he still, that from him. He's
2: building his bow, right? And then when, in, the, um, when, it, yeah. when the villagers come in and they look what they've done to my boy, that guy. Yeah, he's is polishing he, it, isn't he? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, Oh, although when Cost, uh, is it when Slater goes to throw a knife at him and he, and Wolf says, uh, watch out. He has, if you look in his, um, uh, in his quiver, one arrow is separated from the rest for ease of access for, <laughs> the, <laughs> for Costner. <laughs> I always Again, it's a that really good moment, is, um, Yeah. A yeah, really cool moment. Some of the arrows yeah, landing, yeah. like, I remember watching Gladiator and that, that big guy, he gets shot by four arrows, and you can kind of see that he's wearing a chest plate and back plate. But nonetheless, that's a fucking brutal stunt, isn't it, to fire arrows at someone and have that. To to see that because there's there's a few of the Celts that get uh, there's one in particular who's
4: ravaging a woman on the floor I think and he gets two arrows to the back. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Whoa, uh, we should mention there that the uh, the magic mushrooms guy Nick. Uh, that we talked about earlier is actually the guy that gets killed. As most of the Celts, they just dress him up in different costumes. So <laughs> if, you, if you if you watch, him, you can see it's the same guy getting getting killed half the time, and he's he's the one kind of rabbit. He looks like ultimate warrior, and he's kind of uh, ravaging <laughs> the the woman. Burning but yeah, he, he gets oh, killed about t- fifteen times in that sequence. It's great, and I do so,
3: love the final sword um, fight between Robin and um George Nottingham. Should we say? Uh, I always really like that sword fight, especially, I I think it's a really nice, simple thing to to say that Nottingham's got the upper hand with a bigger sword, the bigger, heavier sword that Robin's clearly struggling under the weight of. I really like the way that's uh, choreographed.
0: Recognise this? It belonged to your father. Appropriate, don't you think, that I now use it to send you to meet him?
2: I shall never fear
0: my father's sword really.
4: <laughs> now we're even. Well, I was amazed because he's quite an effete, um, a, almost effeminate, uh, campy theatre-lovey, isn't he? Uh, Rickman. You wouldn't expect him to take on John McClane, and you wouldn't expect him to take on uh, Robin of Luxley, but there's a lot of theatrical strutting and prancing. But I think he that scene really makes him.
5: you... Yeah, yeah
4: I, I think that scene yeah. makes you believe that, that uh, partially due to the, the choreography and the cutting, it's very kind to him.
3: If I must, I will take you a piece at a time. No!
5: I'll do the only taking today. No! No! <laughs>
4: And, and the the spit and the death, we uh, we talked about that um Dadlin, last time. The uh, there's a lot of Shakespearean kind of uh oh, this, this d- draw. D- draw. spit
2: d- and draw oh. at the end of the film, this film is fucking yeah. drenched in it.
1: It really was. <laughs> Remember the, when, when Christian Slater gets tied down to the barrel, the executioner just,
4: gobs, just yeah. gobs on him? It's great. Well, he's very upset. That's one of the times he does speak on the commentary. He actually opens his mouth for once and he actually says how pissed off he was that the guy drooled on him. And, <laughs> and if you watch that guy, the, the executioner, he's, he's very heavy handed with some of the extras as well. There's an old guy at the hanging and he slaps him and he goes, you oh, bastard. Yeah. And uh, he actually slapped him multiple times on all of the takes, so he, he was really going for it.
2: That's uh, when uh, when he's stringing up Wolf the kid and the the old man who's next to him. He's like, Are "You all right?" it's cause he's not all right, he's to gallows. He's gonna die, How's not you?
1: I know, but again, I love that. I love that the film has time in in, in all of that to have a little connection between those two. Because then Wolf is tr- holding him up when um, when he's saved, and you and you're just like that. That is this. I'm, I'm going to walk into my, into my summary a little bit. Um, I, yeah, In fact, you know what? I am going to do it. Uh, so I am going to recommend listeners go and, go and, uh, go and watch Robin Hood Prince of Thieves again, go and reevaluate it yourself. But if you've never seen this. Those moments are the moments that make this like a Hollywood blockbuster film. You know, this subtlety is abandoned. Nuance is abandoned. It's broad characters, themes, and and I um just like you, Patrick, I'm not gonna. I don't feel any remorse. I, I absolutely love this film. Uh, I've had such a blast watching it this week. Uh, and, and and like you say, remembering certain moments and scenes and certain characters. And uh, I just think that right now this is the perfect film to just get your, you know, get you, get you going. I had I had such a great time. And uh, and yeah, it does help that I love Kevin Costner. Uh, a little bit too much, but um, yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't recommend this higher enough. And there's nothing I can say other than just platitudes. I'm afraid I, all yeah. its problems are the reason why I love it. And if it, if you removed them, I think it would fall into obscurity, like the Taron Eckerton one and the Russell Crowe one. You'd just be like, oh, I don't remember that Robin Hood film. I don't know about you guys, but yeah, that's how, that's how I feel about it. I'm
3: going next just purely because you already know what I think about the film. Of course I recommend it. I've, of course, as I've said, I have very, very fond memories about it and talking to you today is giving me more fond memories about it because I'm so glad other people really enjoy it as well. Um, I would recommend seeing the, if you want, if you watch the theatrical cut and you want more Rickman, watch the extended cut. It's very worth it. Watch the Pierce Brosnan narrated, uh, making of documentary because, I mean, it's just a wonder. The, the ninth wonder of the world. And, um, I just love how unabashed this film is. It's really entertaining. It's wonderful. It's highly quotable. It is one of my favorite ever scores. Yeah. I love, I love this film. Yeah. Matt, I think, I feel that you'd be quite positive about this film as well.
4: It yeah, uh, it's an enduring movie, uh, partly due, I think, to the unwavering uh, popularity of the Robin Hood legend. I don't think it will ever go away, and I, I don't want to get too Pierce Brosnan here, or maybe I do. But there's a, a, a it's a medieval myth carried on for eight hundred years with a character who stood up for the common man, a rebel with a cause, to rob the rich and feed the poor you know and and alan rickman actually said on one of the interviews on the disc that uh we're still trying to rip money away from the rich and give it to those who need it and we probably always will be so that kind of sums up the longevity of the tale it's still as relevant as ever uh the anti-greed message is something that probably needs to be retold over and over but uh, i i love it it's um Uh, Anything that still holds the power that it had over me when I was nine is still worthy of praise. It's such a a satisfying movie with a great ending. It's just unabashedly joyous and uh, feel good. And I'd estimate I've seen it about 50 times and three times in quick succession prior to recording this. So I have a history with it. It's like an old friend and I, I love revisiting it and it won't be the last time that I go back and re-watch this one.
2: I'm going to have to just agree. That's all I've got. Like, uh, <laughs> as you said, Gally, I agree with, with you and I agree with Alan Rickman so much for subtlety. Subtlety is overrated at times. I don't need my blockbuster filmers to be, you know, nuanced, studied depictions of things. There are times when you just want to be thoroughly, like, flat out entertained by something. And as we mentioned, is it's a long film, but it is a stacked plot and things just keep moving forward with a with a, a real incre- incredible sense of propulsion that you do just, uh, much like Michael Kamen was talking about how he likes his orchestras to play, it's like it's on a runaway horse and you're just, you're with it all the way through. Um, I, I can understand people maybe retrospectively finding it maybe a little embarrassing that they liked it so much, but I think you'd have to be You'd have to be very, kind of, vain and a bit shallow to be, to be worried about what other people think about you. Like in a film like Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves, because I just think it's thoroughly enjoyable, and uh, and sometimes that's enough. And yes, as everyone said, please do watch Pierce Brosnan's documentary because <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's absurd, and there's there's a great amount of. um uh, Kevin Costner baiting towards the end. Not even baiting, it's it's just it's hagiographic. It's like, I can think of another rebel, the cause, the system, and did things his own way. This is a terrible Pittsburgh impression, but you get the idea.
3: Yeah, I get it. Or maybe you shouldn't be living here! <laughs>
1: No, so, um, I, yeah, I took. I'm really glad that, uh, all four of us had such a, such a blast, uh, watching this one again. And what's interesting is, and we don't, we've never done this on the show, but I found this most fascinating, is that the contemporary reviews had it as a 50-50 split on Rotten Tomatoes. And it's the same with the audience percentages as well that have been, um, registered on that, uh, on the site or aggregated. So it's interesting that it really is like a love-hate relationship with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I do, I do think it's all about, yeah, your, your sensibilities. If you can just, forget about all the nonsense and and, and embrace it and enjoy it, then you're going to have a really good time. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you guys did. And that Pierce Brosnan documentary cannot be sold enough. We might even mention it in future episodes. It's that good. We should say that it's
4: on YouTube. You can watch it right now. You can just uh, search for it. I think it's called The Man, The Myth, The Movie. That's
1: the one.
3: Uh, Can we watch Robin Hood online as well, is it? Is it oh, yeah, so uh,
1: where you can find the film. Uh, so currently it's not um, it's not free as such in the weird subscription world. Uh, so it's not on Amazon or Netflix currently, um, but it's, it's widely available for rent and buy on all streaming services. Um, Plus everyone's got it on DVD anyway. Yeah, you can pick it up on DVD and Blu-ray. I, I picked up the Blu-ray copy, which ray the extended version for £5 uh, from Amazon. Um, so yeah, you know it's, it's widely available. Also, um, it's doing the rounds on Five USA in the UK as far as television. It's basically on every other Saturday. So um, it, it is the neutered version; it's properly cut down. But um, you know, if you just want to get, uh, yeah, get the, the the script notes, then then that's on the, on on Five USA. I think that that's it, guys. Um, we'll say our goodbyes. Uh, we don't have a, like an episode lined up because we never do with uh, with Matt. But the trilogy is over. As far as the Costner trilogy. So just keep an ear out for future episodes involving our, our most favorite, uh, South Korean resident. And, um, and yeah, I'm not going to do a funny line, uh, or a funny quip. I'm going to leave this one to, to Pierce to bookend this episode. So all I'll say is stay safe and thank you for listening. It's Gally in Glasgow signing out.
2: God bless Fanny
4: and God <laughs> bless Robin Hood. That's definitely <laughs> I'll be buggered. It's Matt in South Korea. Good night, everybody.
1: All right, my old cocker It's Patrick from London.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you next time on the Rewire Movie Podcast. Please enjoy Pierce.
0: Amidst the darkest glades of Sherwood Green, in the deepest part of the wood, some say can still be seen the ghost of Robin Hood. So, did Robin Hood really exist? Do we really want to know, after all, if it were to be proven that he did not exist? And that has never been proven. Who would fight for the underdog? Who would wage war against corruption and tyranny? Who would prove that chivalry is not dead? Robin was not only a celebrity, but also a character of mystery. He lives on in our children and in our children's children. 800 years ago, in a dark forest, in medieval England, there lived a hero. A man so remarkable that his name and his story became a legend. A legend that will live on forever. And tomorrow night, with the premiere of Robin Hood, The Prince of Thieves, Kevin Cosner will be the next to string the bow, ignite our imaginations, and continue the legacy. Long live Robin Hood. I'm Pierce Rosner. Good night.